Let's pray. God, by your Spirit, attend to us now. You've promised to bless the reading and the preaching of your word. And we need you to do that yet again today. Would we be dependent on your Holy Spirit? Would we submit ourselves to Scripture? And as truth is found in this word, would we not be blind as the sun is shining all around us? But instead, would you open our eyes to see the beauty and to apply it and to leave this place changed by your word at work? We thank you for the fellowship of believers. We thank you that as we hear it together now, we have the promise of your blessing. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Our text is Mark chapter 2, verses 18 through 22. Today's text is the third of five conflicts that Jesus has with the Pharisees. And so let us hear God's word here in Mark chapter 2, verses 18 through 22. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. And people came and said to him, Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it. The new from the old and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins and the wine is destroyed and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. Thus ends the reading of God's word. Christians are often understood as and portrayed as boring people. I think of movies, I think of songs, I think of the way culture portrays us. Rule-bound, our lives are just boring existences. The good ones in the movies, the good Christians, are dutiful. And the bad ones uh, live different lives during the week. You know, they're fun lives. But their Christian lives are boring. But have we ever considered that the Christians who best take hold of the work of Jesus are in fact the most joyful Have you considered the people who you look up to in their faith? They're usually filled with joy and with celebration and laughter. And I'm not just talking about having a deep joy when things are going well, but also when things are going poorly. That doesn't manifest itself always as happiness, but there is a deep celebratory joy. Jesus in our passage today is showing us that the gospel leads to, to taking pleasure in the beauty and the gifts of life, especially the gifts that we have in Jesus. So for those of you who are in the thick of it now and you're here this evening in the pew out of duty, it is a good thing that you are here. You are not alone. I feel that way often even this morning. It's not a bad thing to come. I applaud you for being here because there is an objective reality happening here and now 
a real celebration and this message that we hear from God's word today is meaningful even for those who don't always feel it. So we come now, submitting ourselves to hear what this message is. We've seen in Mark so far that Jesus has initiated a world-changing mission. The kingdom of God is breaking in, and it is worth wholehearted celebration. That's the main point of our message. But the people in our passage miss it. They think Jesus is just another teacher with just another following. After all, there were Sadducees and there were Pharisees and there were Essenes and there were John the Baptist disciples and there were others. Was Jesus just another movement? Has anything essentially changed now that Jesus is here? The message will be divided into two parts. The false assumption about Jesus and then the celebration of Jesus. The false assumption and then the celebration. So let's look at the false assumption here in our passage. This comes from our first couple verses and our last couple verses. Some people, we're not told who they are, some people come to Jesus and they say, why don't your disciples, why do they not fast? After all, the Pharisees are fasting and the uh, disciples of John the Baptist are fasting. Well, first we need to ask, what is the point of fasting? Well, what is fasting? Fasting is refraining from food for a certain amount of time. And the reason it was done at this time was usually associated with solemnity and with uh, uh, tragedies, with sadness. There was one time of the year that the Jews were supposed to fast, and that was uh, the Old Testament commanded to fast on the Day of Atonement in Leviticus 16. But the Mishnah, the Jewish tradition, had added other instances where you're supposed to fast. You're supposed to fast in lamenting national tragedies. You're supposed to fast in times of crisis like war or famine. And there were also self-imposed fasts that you could do for personal reasons. And it almost seems, we have this natural tendency ourselves, that the more you fast, the more you feel like you're pious. You feel like you're uh, a, a better religious person. The Pharisees added two more fasts every week on Mondays and Thursdays. These were optional for them, but I'm sure the really good ones fasted every Monday and Thursday as well. We don't know exactly why John the Baptist's disciples are fasting here in this specific instance, but we're told that they are. They look more pious. The Pharisees look more pious. So why aren't Jesus' disciples fasting? Now we have to note, Jesus doesn't condemn fasting. Fasting is entirely appropriate at the right time. And it does help in our prayer and in our spiritual awareness. Jesus himself fasted. But he says, now is not the time. My disciples will fast at a certain time, but now is not the time to fast. Did you notice that when they ask this question, they say the disciples of John the Baptist, the disciples of the Pharisees, and then the disciples of Jesus. They assume that he's just another movement leader. They're taking him as a teacher who has good things to say, who has a following, but he's just another teacher and apparently an inferior one of his people aren't as religious as the others. But Jesus gives an answer. He gives an answer with three analogies. He talks about a wedding feast. He talks about a patch on a garment, and he talks about wine and wineskins. We're going to skip the wedding for now. We're going to save that for the end, and we're going to talk about the patch on the garment and the wine and the wineskins. Jesus is showing them, I'm not just another teacher. 
with the old system. I'm not a new twist on an old trick. He says, nobody puts a patch, a new patch, on, on an old garment. Now, we don't usually patch clothes these days, but you know what it's like if you buy a new shirt and it's not pre-shrunk. Put it in the washer and it comes out another size smaller and it doesn't fit anymore. That same idea is applied here. You take an unshrunk piece of cloth and you sew it onto something that has shrunk. Then you wash it. That patch is going to shrink and rip away from the old garment. Jesus is saying, there's something new here and it doesn't fit with the old. And he, he gives another analogy saying the same thing. He says, you take new wine and you put it in an old dried out wine skin. Well, the new wine as it ferments is going to expand and it's going to burst that old dry wine skin. And now you have to throw the wine away and the wine skin. This new wine doesn't mix with this old system. There's something new on the scene. The emphasis with these analogies is the newness of what's going on. He's not just another teacher. When I say 2016 in Cleveland, you know exactly what I'm talking about. The Cavs won the finals, ending the curse, the Cleveland curse. And the parade was televised, and there was great celebration. A new era. The curse is broken. This is a time of victory. Now imagine being the guy at the parade who set up the, the tent selling Golden State Warriors apparel at the Cavs parade. It totally misses the point. You're missing what's going on. This is a whole new era. And of course, that is a, an exaggeration for the sake of Cleveland. But we see that what Jesus is doing is so much greater. He's not letting his disciples fast. When this is a party to be had, this is a new era. The kingdom of God is at hand. Jesus is the, bringing new teaching with authority like we saw early on. This is the fulfillment of what was promised in Jeremiah 31 when God says, Behold, the days are coming when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. What the Old Testament has been pointing forward to is here. The fulfillment has come. Jesus cannot be a new twist on an old system. He is a whole new means of receiving the covenant blessings that Israel was promised for all who place their faith in Jesus. This is a new way to relate to the living God. Let's look at the celebration of Jesus. We see their misunderstanding, their false assumption about who he is. We see he's actually doing something so much more than just teaching or gathering a following. Jesus describes a proper response like a wedding. Jesus explains that he and the kingdom are to be celebrated. Wedding celebrations in those days were extravagant. Ours in America are nice. Theirs took it to the next level. Listen to this description of a Jewish wedding. A wedding celebration in a Jewish village normally lasted seven days for a virgin bride or three days for a remarried widow. Friends and guests had no responsibility but to enjoy the festivities. There was an abundance of food and wine as well as song, dance, and fun, both in the house and on the street. Even rabbis were expected to desist from Torah instruction and to join the celebration with their students. 
We know what it's like in our short American weddings. If we're the last table to get to go through the buffet line, we get hungry. We see them eating over there. They're celebrating the marriage that just happened, and here we are waiting. That's not appropriate. We're supposed to be feasting with them. Why is it now a time of feasting? Why is it a time of a wedding? Why does Jesus use this analogy of abundance to indicate what he is doing? He is ushering in the kingdom of God. His kingdom reign has begun. He is reigning. Look at the story so far in Mark. You kind of have to piece this together, kind of like, almost like cracking a code. You, you look at a little bit of this story and that story as Mark has gone through this. Let's do a quick recap and we'll see what it's pointing us to. Jesus, when he begins his ministry in 114, he proclaims the gospel of the kingdom of God, calling for repentance and belief in, verse, in chapter 1, verse 15. So he's announcing, here's the kingdom. It is upon us. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe. That's how you enter into the kingdom. And he continues, he goes on, and next thing he does is he teaches with authority in the synagogue. And while he's doing that, he casts out a demon showing that he, is, he has authority over even demons. So now his spiritual authority in the kingdom is even pushing back darkness of the spiritual realm. And then he goes to Simon's mother-in-law's house, or his, yes, uh, and takes her by the hand and heals her fever showing his power over physical ailments, and then to take it the next, to the next level, he cleanses, he, he eradicates the uncleanness of a leper that separated him from community and from the blessings of the synagogue. And then he healed a man of his paralysis, but even greater, forgave his sins. The kingdom of God is breaking in, pushing back all these things, pushing back evil, pushing back sickness, pushing back uncleanness, and pushing back sin. And then his kingdom is associated with whom? Tax collectors and sinners. The unlikely. Look at the pattern. Jesus comes to those who are broken and his presence ends up with them. He comes to those who are weak and unclean and sinful. He heals them and then his presence is there. He is feasting with the tax collectors and sinners. He goes to the broken and heals them. And that's what the whole Old Testament points us to. God's presence with his people. God created the temple for his people so that he might be with them. He set up the sacrifices to take away their sins so that he might be able to be with them. The sacrifices point us forward to his presence with us. Especially the sacrifice of Jesus Christ is what we wait for as we look at those Old Testament examples. These are types and these are shadows. The blood of bulls and rams never actually forgave sins. But it told us to wait and look for the sacrifice that will forgive sins. And here it is. Jesus is on the scene. The fulfillment has arrived. Everything the Old Testament has expected has come. This is a new era. This is no longer a time of waiting. This kingdom of God is at hand. Christ is reigning. Sin is being forgiven and defeated. Brokenness and uncleanness are being healed. God is with his people in the man of Jesus Christ. The marriage between God and his people has begun. 
This is to be celebrated. And so you and I say, okay, if the kingdom has already come, why is there still sin? And we have to understand the already, not yet of this. It has already begun. Jesus has already done everything necessary. Yet we wait for the finished work, the the fullness of it when Christ returns. He's promised he's coming back. And we wait for that day for the kingdom to reign in its fullness. The work is finished. Jesus has done it. It is enough. But today, our lives are still affected. Yes, by sin, but our lives also are affected by the reign of Christ for the better. You can think of your perspective toward loss is now different. We face it with hope. Broken relationships can in part be fixed through reconciliation that we share with each other as believers. Personal struggles and more. All these can find healing in the gospel of Jesus, yet we wait for that last day for it to be fully wiped out, for sin to be fully gone. And the promise that is on on that day, there will be no more tears, no more sorrow, no more pain. Also, not all sin has been paid for yet. Our sins have been paid for, and we wait for the day that justice is poured out on the sins of the rest of the world. Also, Satan is not yet thrown into the lake of fire. He is bound by Christ's work. He is not as powerful as he might have been because we have the Spirit of God. And because through the Spirit, Christ is reigning in us and in his church. So what is happening? Is the kingdom of God is here and the kingdom of God will come in its fullness and these are worth celebrating. Let's talk specifically about the feasting part of weddings. Now it's, it's getting late. You might be hungry. Your stomach might be growling, ready to go feast. So this is an appropriate time to talk about feasting. In the Old Covenant, God talks about agricultural abundance quite often. The blessing of the land. You're going to build a vineyard and you're going to drink its wine. You're going to build a garden and you're going to eat its fruit for those who keep the covenant. But for those who don't, You're going to build a vineyard and somebody else is going to come in and enjoy it. You're going to build a garden and somebody else is going to come in and eat all the food. So for those who don't keep the covenant, they would be punished with famine, drought, destruction, death, and more. And for those who did keep the covenant, listen to the the specific feasting language in these blessings. This one's from Isaiah 25, 6. The Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food, full of marrow, of aged wine, well-refined. That's the verse we read last week with the Messianic banquet from Isaiah 25. Listen to Joel 3. The mountains shall drip sweet wine and the hills shall flow with milk. Amos 9. I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel and they shall rebuild the ruined cities and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and drink their wine and they shall make gardens and eat their fruit. In Jeremiah 31, I will feast the soul of the priests with abundance and my people shall be satisfied with my goodness, declares the Lord. That verse really shows us all these agricultural uh, abundances are good things and they are blessings, but they are simply pointing us to the abundance that we will have in Jesus Christ. 
says, they shall be satisfied with my goodness, declares the Lord. He is the one who will be enough. The spiritual abundance that we receive in Christ is now on the scene, offered to all those who trust in Christ. In all the covenant requirements, the fulfillment is found in Jesus. And the blessings are poured out on all who have faith in him. And Jesus is claiming here, as the kingdom is breaking in, to be the initiator of this abundance, of this covenant blessing of feasting. But with whom? He feasts with people who broke the covenant. He feasts especially with tax collectors and sinners, as we saw last week. Why are they getting the benefits of this covenant abundance and covenant faithfulness if they've not been faithful? It's because Jesus has done it all. It's because Jesus has kept the covenant on our behalf and he gives us the blessings that he deserves and that we don't deserve. And then he takes the curses that we deserve on himself. This is entirely new. This is the new covenant. This is the new way of relating to God. It's now through faith. It's by trusting what Christ has done on your behalf. It's no longer striving by obeying the law in order to get blessings. They are given to us when we receive them by faith. Now, Jesus says there is a day when he will be taken away, and then that will be the time for fasting. It's unusual for the groom to be taken by force from a wedding. But what Jesus is doing is hinting, it's it's veiled language, but he's hinting at the fact that he will die. He will be taken from these wedding guests. So does this mean that the wedding is off? Does this mean that the blessings are canceled? You have to remember that when Jesus died, darkness covered the earth. But in that same moment, the temple, the veil was torn. And God's blessing, God's presence was made available to his people And three days later, Jesus rose from the dead. Three days later, life defeated death. Light defeated darkness. The feasting would resume very soon when he rose from the dead victorious over all the obstacles of the evil one. Jesus is still victorious. And he and his bride will be wed at the marriage supper of the Lamb in Revelation 19. This is a great day, Revelation 19. This is when the church is finally wed to Christ forever. And that has begun now if we are in Christ. We are already wed to our Father, but we wait for the celebration of it and the fullness of it and the abundance of it. And it's going to be a feast like we have never imagined. Utter joy, great rejoicing, better food and drink than you have ever thought possible. Because we will be celebrating the lamb. Will you be there? If you have placed your hope in Jesus Christ, you'll be there and it will be great joy. But if you've not, know that there is forgiveness of your sins. The spirit as your comforter is offered and you will be a blessed invitee to this feast. The marriage supper of the Lamb, that is what we wait for. So what do we do today? 
Are we content, like, like these people were in verse 18, are we content putting Jesus in league with the other leaders of the day, the Pharisees and John the Baptist? Is he just another teacher? Does he say good things that are good to obey? Or do we see that this kingdom and this power points to his perfect control of all the cosmos and of all of my life? It's not just an intellectual pursuit. It is a whole life pursuit. We're living in a new kingdom. It changes the way we look at the world around us. We're not living in this kingdom primarily. Yes, we are in the world we are not of the world. Our kingdom is a heavenly kingdom because Christ has transferred us out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. We're no longer slaves to any other kingdom, whether it's the, the kingdom of Satan, the kingdom of the world, which are the same. And do we see that being saved is not something that we earn through pious rituals like fasting enough to make God happy? Instead, this participation is a gift that we receive and that we celebrate Imagine a little girl on her birthday. Her parents went all out this year. They gave her the most impressive, extravagant, and expensive life-size dollhouse. It fills half the basement. What if the little girl saw it? Dryly said, Thank you, dear parents. And then proceeded to feel badly about what she owes her parents for the dollhouse, and then she tries to pay it off. No, she's supposed to squeal with joy, run up to it, play in it, say, thank you. I love it. And when she's worn herself out, enjoying the extravagant gift, she says to her mom and dad, I love you. Thank you. As she runs and collapses into their arms. What about us? We've been given the most extravagant gift. We've been given life everlasting, but have we ever celebrated it? Or is it something that we feel badly about that we feel like we need to pay back? By going to church enough, by feeling badly enough about our sins, by fasting at the right time, let's stop trying to impress each other with our piety and start enjoying the blessed fellowship of God's people. The church community is one of those abundant blessings for us to enjoy. Then I think about all the lesser things that we like to celebrate instead. We're told in the Psalms to delight ourselves in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Nothing in this world will satisfy us. C.S. Lewis says we are far too easily pleased. Let's expect the fullest gifts, the most grand abundance, because we can expect that in Jesus. So let's stop thinking that sitting here in the pews is doing our time and that our real life will start once Sunday is over. No, the blessing of worship is one of those to celebrate. Even when we don't feel like it right now, can we see the celebration that is happening of Christ being wed with his people, of him feasting with us at this table, of him speaking to us through his word, of him forgiving our sins, of his presence being here? Let us run into the gracious, loving arms of our Savior every time we find joy in what he has done. Rather than worshiping the creature, let's worship the creator and give him thanks. Because Jesus has shown up on the scene, we have peace with God. We have access to grace when we fail. 
We have the hope of the glory of God when we end up feeling like we're trudging through life. And in His Spirit, whom He has given us, we hear God as He speaks. We can say with the psalmist that we delight in God's law. It's full of life. It is so good for us. And that changes the way we see the Bible sitting there on the coffee table. It's not just another reminder of guilt as we walk by and say, oh, I should do that. But instead, we start to long for it and say, I want to commune with this God because this is a celebration. All my sins are forgiven. I have been given all the blessings of covenant faithfulness. And I get to feast with the Savior through his word, through his church. And we wait for that day when we feast in all senses with Jesus and with his church and with our God. So let's change the way that we view our worldly possessions. We'll see them differently. We'll see them with contempt and yet we'll remain grateful for the worldly passage that we have. These treasures that we hold on to are trinkets and they're nothing compared to the gifts that we've been given. This journey is God's way of preparing us and dressing us for that wedding to be adorned with holiness and to be ready for the most extravagant feast we'll ever eat at the marriage supper of the Lamb when we are given to our Savior in celebratory marriage. Let us be a people who celebrate Jesus and, and his kingdom as he reigns here.